Good morning. All right. So we are going to be reading from Ruth chapter 1. Please feel free to join me in your Bibles, your uh, programs, or on the screen above. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Melon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she rose, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her, to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was so determined to go with her, she said no more. For those of you relatively new to our church, we are in the middle of a sermon series called The Mothers of Jesus, where we're going over all the mothers that are listed in Jesus's genealogy found in Matthew chapter 1. And when you look at his genealogy, you see that five mothers are listed. You have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And each Sunday we're covering and highlighting one of these mothers. 
because for some reason, Matthew sees a connection between these mothers and the arrival of Jesus Christ. For some reason, Matthew decided to do something out of the ordinary. He included the names of these women because he wants us to see how these women's stories prepare us for the arrival of Jesus Christ. And so every Sunday, we're looking at each individual story, and we're seeing how they connect us and prepare us for Jesus' entrance into this world. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Lewis talked about Tamar. Last week, I talked about Rahab. And today, we are going to look at the inspiring story of Ruth. Now, this book is named after Ruth and aptly so, but an argument can be made that the book of Ruth is also about Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. So let's get to know Naomi. Who is she? Well, she is the wife of Elimelech, and she has two sons, Malone and Chilion. Naomi's family faces a predicament. In the first verse, we read that there is a famine throughout the land. And so for an agricultural economy like theirs, famine equaled suffering. It equaled starvation. It equaled death. And so facing this threat, Naomi's family makes a decision. They decide to leave Home. They decide to leave Bethlehem for the country of Moab. Now, I want you to know that their decision to move out of the promised land and into Moab was more than just a pragmatic one. It was actually a religious, spiritual decision. You see, by leaving Bethlehem for Moab, what they're doing is essentially turning their backs on God. Why? Because God gifted the Israelites the promised land for them to dwell in. And so by leaving the promised land, they're really saying, God, we reject your gift. We won't trust you. We're going to take our chances in the Gentile country of Moab. And of all the countries they decide to move to, they move to Moab, a country known to be the hillbilly cousins of Israel. They were the descendants of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. And so the Israelites looked down upon Moab. They saw them as pagan worshipers that bowed down to false idols. In fact, the word Moab etymologically is, uh, can be divided into two words. Mo, which means who, Ab, which means father. And so it reads, who is your father? Or to put in modern terms, who's your daddy, right? It's their way of saying this country is without a God. They've abandoned their father. Now, after settling down in Moab, Naomi's family experiences tragedy. Suddenly, out of nowhere, her husband Elimelech dies. You can imagine the shock waves that his death would have on the family. 
Especially when you consider that back then they lived in a patriarchal society where your financial security was gained through the men of your family. Thankfully, Naomi still has a security net. She has her two sons. They will still take care of her. Not only that, but in the next verse, we read that her two sons marry. And so nothing can quite uh, soothe a grieving heart than wedding bells for your children and then the prospect of grandchildren. But then out of nowhere, tragedy strikes again. Her two sons die. And her two sons also fail to provide any grandchildren for her. Both Ruth and Orpah fail to conceive. And so you have a poor Naomi who in a span of three verses goes from a family of four down to a family of one. Her financial security are now buried in the grave. And I want you to know that back then, there was no more destitute position than to be a fatherless, husbandless, sonless widow. Such was Naomi. Some people argue that Naomi is the female equivalent of Job. She goes from possessing so much hope, stripped down to nothing. Phyllis Tribal, she says this, from wife to widow, from mother to no mother, this female is stripped of all identity. She then writes and, and uh, underscores how in verse 5, look at what Naomi is called. Verse 5 reads, both Malone and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She's no longer referred to as Naomi. She's no longer referred to as a wife. She's simply referred to as a nameless woman. At the same time, Naomi is not simply a victim here, is she? She made bad choices. She did leave Bethlehem. She did reject the promises of God. I would not be surprised if in this moment of deep grief, she was also filled with deep regret. Why did we leave Israel? And this regret is compounded by the fact that she decides to return home. Why? Because the famine was lifted in Israel. Oh, why did we leave? We should have never left. And now as she returns home, she's probably imagining her reception as her neighbors whisper, wait, isn't that Naomi? Where's her husband? Where's her son's? Ah, she should have never left. Dear friends, life can be cruel, can it? There are times where we can be blindsided by life. There are times where we find ourselves on paths we never imagined. No one chooses to grow up in a fatherless home. No one chooses to be victimized by abuse. No one chooses a life-altering disease. No one chooses infertility. 
Naomi's life is a symbol of what it's like to live in a fallen world, broken by sin. At the same time, she also shows that we are not just victims of sin, but that we contribute to the brokenness of this world. Of how often, every day, we turn our backs on God and worship the lesser idols of this world. Yet thankfully for Naomi, God is not done with her. Her story has, is not over. To her surprise, both of her daughters-in-law accompany her back to Israel. And so in verse 8, she does what most mothers-in-law would do. She tells them, go back. What are you doing following me? And then she follows up with a blessing in verse 8. She says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. This was a formal way for Naomi to release her daughters-in-law. This was her way of, uh, of unbinding their conscience. I release you from any obligations or responsibility you have towards me. Go back to your families in Moab. Your parents are waiting for you. Your siblings are there to embrace you. Not only that, but as Moabite women, you're still young enough to get remarried. And your prospects of remarriage are far higher in Moab than in Israel because my kind, they don't like Moabites. In verse 13, Naomi then goes on to say, quote, The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Can't you see, guys? I'm cursed by God. You follow me and you are following a life of destitution and suffering. I cannot provide for you. Please go back. Now, as an aside, when I see Naomi pushing her daughters-in-law away, I cannot help but see a mirror of what we tend to do when we're depressed. What we tend to do when we hit a low and we feel unworthy, we feel unlovable. When we are depressed, humans tend to withdraw, don't we? We tend to withdraw and isolate ourselves from community. Why do we do that? I think we do that because somehow, some way, we feel unworthy of connection. We feel so bad about ourselves, we fear that if other people get to know us, they're going to see how bad we really are. And so we hide and we slink back into our caves. Unfortunately, we're doing the very opposite of what we need in that moment. When we're feeling low, when we're feeling depressed, the one thing that could help us get out of our depression is what? Community. 
a community who can speak into our lives and says, I don't think you're as unworthy as you think you are. I don't think you're as unlovable as you think you are. A a loving, supportive community can come alongside us and get us out of that depressed state. And so as humans, we fall into this negative feedback loop where we feel bad about ourselves, we withdraw, and since we're alone and isolated, we feel bad about ourselves, and we withdraw, and the cycle moves on. And so for anyone here struggling with depression, my plea with you is to let us know how you're feeling. Break that cycle of isolation and withdraw. We are here to walk with you and to speak words of affirmation and love into your life. Now, going back to our passage, in light of Naomi's plea, Orpah and Ruth have a decision to make. As much as Naomi is speaking out of her grief, she's also speaking some truth here. There's wisdom to her words. Naomi is right. If you follow her, you're pretty much linking yourself to a life of hardship and destitution. The road to Israel is a road that leads to nowhere. They'd be Moabite women living in the nation of Israel. On the other hand, the road to Moab is one of hope. There's security and support with their parents and their siblings. There's hope of remarriage in Moab. And so Orpah does what most of us would probably do. She chooses the road to Moab. She gives her mother-in-law one last kiss and returns home. And I want you to know that the narrator doesn't villainize her in any way, doesn't look down upon her as if she was a a heartless, selfish woman. No, she makes the sensible choice, the logical choice. But how about Ruth? The end of verse 14 is arguably one of the most breathtaking verses in all of Scripture. Let me read verse 14 again. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. As Naomi is preparing to say her last goodbyes. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth does the unexpected. While Orpah leaves, Ruth cleaves. While Orpah leaves, Ruth cleaves. In fact, the word translated as cling here is the same word used in Genesis 2.24 when God says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Or in the Hebrew, clings to his wife. And so just as a man clings and holds fast to his wife, Ruth holds fast to Naomi. And to show how serious she is, she makes a vow. 
a vow which is one of the most sublime expressions of love found in all of Scripture. In fact, verses 16 and 17 were printed on me and Helen's wedding program when we got married. She says this, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Wow. Each statement ratchets up her commitment. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I cling to you, bind myself to you, both body and soul. Her commitment is nothing short of extraordinary. As she gives up everything, as she gives up her comfort, her security, her traditions from home and clings to Naomi even though it leads to great suffering. How do we make sense of her decision? How many of you would make the same one? How many of you would do this with your mother-in-law? I don't think many of us. And so we're asking the very same type of question we asked last week with Rahab. We looked at Rahab and we were puzzled. Why in the world would Rahab help these spies? Why in the world does Ruth cling to Naomi? The answer is the same. Their love for the God of Israel. Their faith. Though she grew up in Moab, by marrying, in, by marrying these Israelites and marrying into an Israelite family, she fell in love with the God of Israel. Her faith is expressed in verse 17. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. What she's saying here is she's making an oath. She's making a vow. And back then, when you made a vow, you invoked the name of your deity. You invoked the name of your deity and said, I promise to fulfill my commitment. If not, my deity will punish me. And so if you were Egyptian, you invoked the name of Ra. If you were a Canaanite, you invoked the name of Asherah. And so who does she invoke? May the Lord... She uses the covenantal name of Israel. May the Lord do to me. I am one of you guys. I belong to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this is why she refuses to leave. This is why she clings. By clinging to Naomi, she's ultimately clinging to her God. In Ruth's mind, God was worth giving up everything for. So how does Ruth's story prepare us for Jesus? 
how does she highlight the arrival of Jesus? Evidently, Matthew saw a connection. Otherwise, he wouldn't have listed her in Jesus' genealogy. If you're familiar with the gospel, I hope you hear the reverberations in her story. You know, I, I'm a huge Star Wars fan of, of the movies. I'm not so geeky that I read the comics or anything like that. But we are all familiar with the Star Wars score written by John Williams, right? Da, 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 right? We're all familiar with that. Now, what I love is when I watch a spinoff Star Wars, any of the recent movies or the shows that are on Disney+, Plus. As I watch those movies, I will hear reminiscence of that score, where they'll have their own music, but the writer will adopt a measure here, a note here, an instrument here that makes you realize, ha, this is all part of the same Star Wars universe. You could hear reverberations of the score in those films. The same is true with Ruth. When you read her story, it smells like the gospel. It sounds like the gospel. When you see Ruth decide to leave the comforts of home and willingly enter a foreign world where she'll face suffering and persecution, we think of Jesus, do we not? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that before Christmas, Jesus reigned in heavenly glory above, surrounded by myriads of angels, enjoying the perfect eternal love of God the Father and God the Spirit. Life was good. And yet he emptied himself. He stepped away from the privileges that were his as the Son of God and became man. He steps away from the comforts of home and into our fallen world where John chapter 1 tells us he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He entered our world knowing that we would reject him. And so as Ruth is willing to give up everything in order to follow Naomi into a world that would reject her, her, Jesus steps away from heaven and enters our world, knowing that we would reject him. And as you let that sink in, and as you're able to connect the dots between Ruth and Jesus, then it helps us to see that Naomi represents who? represents us. It represents the church. Like Naomi, we too 
have turned our backs on God. Like Naomi, we too have suffered the impacts of the fall. Like Naomi, we too are insecure. We too struggle with doubt. We too wonder if we're worthy. We see ourselves in Naomi as she pleads with her daughters-in-law, I'm just an old widow. I have no future. I have no sons. I have no money. Please leave me alone. Perhaps you grew up in a critical household where the only thing you experienced from your parents was how you aren't good enough. And perhaps the voice of your parents now serve as the soundtrack of your life. I'm not good enough. And so when your boss criticizes you, it takes you down into a a spiral. Perhaps You struggle with a secret addiction or a besetting sin. And every time you fall, uh, every time you fall off the wagon, you're back to this state of, I am a loser. I am a failure. Get away from me. I'm not worthy. Or perhaps you're frustrated with the lack of growth in your faith. How many times have I tried to commit myself to regular devotions with the Lord? How many times am I going to break a promise to God? Why do I continue to lose my temper? Why do I continue to struggle with lust? Why do I continue to struggle with anxiety? Why can't I just trust God? And so like Naomi, we generate reason after reason as to why God should leave us, why we aren't worthy of God's love. But every time we raise these reasons, God clings to us. Every time we try to push him away, He holds fast to us and says, for every reason you give me to leave, I have a greater reason for me to cling. My only begotten son lived and died for you. And now you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I can never reject you because now you are a part of me. And that is why Jesus came into this world, to make us a part of him, to make us his own. And that is why we sing, that is why we celebrate, because even though we do have a thousand reasons that disqualify us from God. He has one reason that trumps all that, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dear friends, if this morning you have not yet 
put your trust and faith in Jesus, I invite you to do that today. Our God desires to have a living, personal relationship with you. He desires to cling to you. All you have to do is put your faith in him. You can do what Parsa did this morning and get baptized. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, please talk to me, Pastor Lewis, or anyone else at this church you might know. And for those of us who have made that decision, I want you to know that you have a Ruth in your life. There is someone who holds fast to you who will never let you go, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are humbled by your amazing love, a love that will never let us go, a love that holds fast to us. We thank you, O oh Lord, that the cross has conquered the grave. The cross has conquered our guilt and shame. And because of Jesus, we are now bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. Lord, especially for those weighed down this morning by the weightiness of sin, would you enable us to experience the joy of our salvation? And may we, as a covenant community here at New Life, embrace and walk alongside everyone as we mutually point each other to our only hope in this life, and that is you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.